Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? It's going to be another special one today just to talk about what's actually happening, opinions about the real estate market, but also we're going to take a little bit of a shift today and I've invited, you guys might know Sarah Etter, but also her boyfriend, spouse, I don't know what you guys call each other, Justin, <laughs> the therapist. Justin has done a lot of studies. He's helped, he helps a lot of couples, a lot of families, and, and I'm, I'm super excited to have them both on. So Sarah, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us. This yeah. is super fun. Our first podcast together. Yeah. <laughs> Very exciting. Now, you, Sarah, you've been on a bunch of podcasts before, and okay. there's still a, a real estate element to it. Why don't you guys give us each a little bit of your background in real estate, but also potentially, you know, beyond that as well? Sure. Yeah, for sure. You want me to go first? Sure. Yeah. Start off with the real estate side of things. So yeah, so for those of you guys that don't know me, I'm Sarah Etter. I've been investing in real estate for about three years. I work solely with joint venture partners and private capital. We have over 70 doors right now uh, with partners. We invest in Brantford, Hamilton, Welland, St. Catharines. Yeah, and I'm a full-time investor. Quit my corporate job a couple of years ago, so that's pretty exciting. And yeah, I mean, I guess my background, I was a professional athlete before I got into real estate. So I love coaching other, you know, young investors onto, you know, how to grow real estate portfolio in a more of like an unconventional way if you don't have a corporate job or good credit or good income. And uh, it's really exciting to have Justin on because he's very involved in my portfolio, but does not invest with me. So I think it'll be cool to talk about today. Absolutely. So, so I will say, if you want to learn how to raise capital without using your actual own capital for real estate, Sarah is the the go-to person. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Right. So, Justin, a little bit of background on uh, on what you do and potentially how it relates to real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, one thing that's really interesting is that many years ago, when I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. I had a few set things that I wanted to do. One of them was actually investing in real estate, uh, but uh, I I didn't end up going in that direction. But it was one of those things that were always in the back of my head that once I have a career that's going, I, I wanted to invest in real estate. Then, then I met Sarah, uh, and then over the course of a few years, she decided to switch careers and invest in real estate. So that was like, okay, wow, I, we get to do, we get to fulfill all of the dreams that I've had. <laughs> But that's not what I do personally. Uh, I, uh, you know, been in the field of psychology for many years. I did my first master's in social and personality psychology, studying families and relationships and attractiveness and divorce and culture. Uh, and then I did my second master's degree in couple and family therapy, which allowed me to become a registered psychotherapist in Ontario. So now I practice as a therapist. I work with individuals, couples, and families. Very cool. And congratulations as well. Like that is a lot of school. Like I remember we used to have our weekends up here at the cottage. You guys used to come and Justin would just be like studying and working. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Those days are now over. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I think it's just important because, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs in our lives. And it's just, I really wanted to bring you guys both because, you know, you're, Sarah, like super active in real estate investing. You know, Justin, you're, you're talking to a lot of couples, a lot of families. And so I have a few questions and then you can kind of let me know how you guys do it and potentially how you, you know, any tips or strategies that you can give others. So let's let's start with being a couple where one spouse loves real estate investing and one <laughs> other spouse is not on board. I'm guessing creates a lot of tension. So maybe walk us through some strategies to potentially talk to your other spouse about it and how do you guys get along when one person is super and it, you know it could be anything but let's just say real estate but one person is super excited about something that's their passion and the other one does not uh, follow that. 
I'll let you talk about that. Yeah. I'm lucky because he listens to me talk about real estate like nonstop, but I'm sure he'll have good tips because we're both entrepreneurs. So we both yeah. work from home. We both have separate passions. So it definitely takes a balancing act. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key word is balancing act is because just like with any profession or any hobby, it's likely that your partner or spouse does not share the same passion you have, but that doesn't mean that it can't be part of the relationship. And it doesn't mean that um, it has to overtake the relationship. I find that like, if you are passionate about something like real estate, it's great if you find that balance, that level of like, like this is how much my partner is okay with. Um, if my partner wants to learn more and they want me to teach them, great. I will teach them about real estate, you know, bring them to networking events like Sarah's been doing for me. But then there's always that level. It's like, okay, you know what? That's, that's enough. That's, this is where my line is kind of thing. And I think Sarah and I found that line. And, uh, and yeah, I think with real estate in particular, it's really good because it does have a positive impact on the family, obviously, because it does lead to creating financial independence. So I think that like one thing I've noticed for people who are really passionate about it themselves and their spouse isn't is one of the selling features is that, you know, this is for us, this is for you, this is for the kids kind of thing. So I think taking that in consideration is a, makes it much more of a easy sell kind of thing. Absolutely. And a lot of people might say, well, you know, my spouse doesn't even want to hear about it. They're just so risk adverse and they think it's like the riskiest thing in the world. How do you overcome something like that where they don't even want to have that discussion to begin with? And they're saying that it's absolutely you know, a horrible investment because of all the stuff that they hear in the media? That's a, that's a great question. At first when Sarah wanted to uh, start investing <laughs> in real estate and she was talking about like, okay, you know what, we're going to, we're going to put this much money down and uh, you know, we're going to try and sell it and find a, a buyer or something like that. I was like, whoa, that's a lot of money. That's more money than I've ever had probably in my whole life at that point of course and joint ventures and joint ventures he was yeah, not was, happy about joint ventures yeah. he's like what is this like you're crazy you can't yeah. give 50 percent away like what are you doing well I, I wanted to understand like why would someone give 50 away 50 away but then the thing is is that i asked a lot of questions of sarah because i wanted to understand because i feel like you know sarah's not crazy so there has to be a reason why she's so convinced that this is a good idea investing in real estate so me being who i am i wanted to learn so i'm like okay you know what? i'm going to give you a chance i want to understand what what is what is this kind of thing um so i think that that's one thing is that if the spouse who's on real estate investing is uh open-minded to learning i think it makes a big difference because even though it is risky Something I heard you, Sarah, say is that like one of the most common or, or I guess uh, the, one of the best ways to grow wealth is actually to invest in real estate. It's one of the least risky, most reliable ways to make wealth, right? Um, so I think that if they're willing to hear it and if they're willing to do their own research, it could be good. If they're not, it can be a problem. I think it makes a difference if it's the one person's money and they're just choosing to do with it what they want versus if it's the if it's the collective money of the relationship. I think if it's like um, both of our money, then there needs to be more communication. There needs to be more consent between both people. But if it's your own money and you're like, you know what, you are okay, my spouse and our kids are okay, and this is some money that I want to invest on the side, or this won't take away from my day-to-day -day job. This is kind of like um, something I'm doing um, with my time off kind of thing, but I'm not, I'm making sure that we are okay in terms of time and money. Then I think that that might also be something, uh, that, that might also be a way of kind of showing that it's not going to affect the family too much. And then over time, assuming that it becomes successful, I think that uh, the partner might be more open-minded to it. Yeah, absolutely. I know when we first started, Matt didn't want to do it and it took a couple of years to convince him and his biggest concern. And I think it's probably important to understand what the concerns are, like where, you know, where the fear is coming from or where the, um, you know, maybe it's a lack of understanding. Maybe it's just, 
Uh, I mean, it could be many different reasons, but his reason was just having a horrible tenant mm-hmm. that trashes the yeah. place and doesn't pay and having to deal with that drama. Yeah. So I originally I had eliminated that by picking the tenants first and then finding the property. And that was how we got our second or third. Our first one was with a sister. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't think I would recommend that necessarily for a lot of people to work with family. <laughs> always gets a little bit iffy but um you know our second tenant we actually talked to her found her back in the day there were not as much competition on properties and it was doable mm. but you mentioned so i want to go back because you mentioned money um and you know everyone that's listening to this i'm thinking cares about the finances and, and that kind of stuff so as a couple do you recommend a certain way to split things like is it a you know joint account separate accounts like how do you suggest that to keep keep the peace and everybody happy that they split their accounts and their income and their finances and all that stuff. Mm. We can talk about how we do it, which if you want. Sure, if you want, yeah. Yeah. Me too? Okay. Sure, yeah, go yeah. ahead and then I'll say something. Sure, I'll let him do his therapist piece. Yeah, because we, we had that conversation, right? Like when we moved in together, because now we have like a car together, we have a house together, and we had to think, okay, how do we maintain enough independence that each person feels safe, especially since both of us have independent businesses, but how do we also have like, you know, some sort of collective thing? Cause, cause we do make a lot of decisions. I think we're pretty 50 50 when it comes to big life decisions. So we actually each have our own independent bank accounts and then one joint account specifically for household things. So whether that's like rent, insurance, you know, just all of the like groceries, that kind of stuff. So we uh, decided how much each person needed to contribute like per month. So we, as long as each person's putting in their like amounts to that account, what we kind of do with the rest of our money in our independent accounts. I mean, we still like check in with each other, but I think we have a little independence on the side too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, um, and, and that's one way that it can be done. And it seems to be working for us. It's been several years now that we've been doing this, but I want to acknowledge that with other relationships, things can be different and can still function. So Sarah and I happen to both be entrepreneurs. So we both have our own businesses and our own accounts and stuff like that, personal and business. But there are some couples who both maybe are working and maybe both, both salaries go to the same account. And then they kind of maybe both manage it together. I know in a lot of relationships that I work with, there's one person that kind of manages the money and the other person maybe manages other things in the home or in the family, whatever it might be. And that can work as well. Often there's one person who uh, makes most of the money and the other person maybe doesn't as much. And the person who doesn't as much, sometimes they're the person who actually manages the money because that is one thing that the, I guess, you know, nine to five person working doesn't have to deal with. And it also kind of fits in with managing the household, managing the kids, managing the the buying and all that stuff. And sometimes it's the reverse. The person who's doing most of the breadwinning is also managing the money. And that also can work. But what I've noticed in my practice that makes it work or versus doesn't is the level of openness and, uh, and care and uh, making sure that both people are okay with how this is working. So if there is one person that doesn't really manage the money, if that person wants to see what's being spent, I think that it's important to be open about that as opposed to like, no, I manage, you can't see what we're spending money on. Or I don't want to show you my credit card statement, that kind of thing. I think the openness is what's really important. Yeah, it is important for sure. You know, as as you're saying this, there's so many, so many things that come to mind, but I think the biggest thing is just making sure that both people are okay with it. Yeah, yeah. And talk to each other. Like you have to, if you're making a big spend, I mean, I think that's something you, you have to talk to yourself. I mean, and this is real estate related or not, but even when I buy a new house, like, you know, even if he's not really involved in a lot of the decision making with the real estate, I still run stuff mm-hmm. by him. Cause I feel it, like that's like every week you buy a new house. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, so I put it in offer on another property like, today. Oh, what number is that? <laughs> She's like, I lost count. I'm like, so did I. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, so with that, you know, there's obviously ups and downs in the market. There's, there's good and bad times. There's times of stress. There's so many times of uncertainty. You know, right now, you know, with the pandemic, 
who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if there's going to be a second wave, a third wave? Who knows if there's going to be something that comes every three years that's going to cause a lot of chaos? So I don't think it's only for today. But how are couples coping? Like what kind of strategies are you giving them to be able to you know, work their relationships. Like one thing that I'm reading a lot on and I've been talking, unfortunately, to like my mortgage brokers and stuff like that. And there's a lot of people going and getting divorced after the, everything else opens. So what are some ways to, you know, get along throughout these times of uncertainty and chaos? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one thing I want to say is that these are times of uncertainty and chaos. And whenever you add stressors to a relationship, it makes it harder. It makes it feel like it's like less successful than it is so there are some couples that come to me and they're saying like you know what our relationship is is um is worse than it's ever been it's it's really really bad now and part of it is it could be situational maybe the relationship is a good relationship it's just with all the uncertainty and the chaos and instability maybe the, the financial precariousness uh, things are feel like they are worse but it's situational the other hand is that it could actually not be situational and maybe the relationship wasn't very strong in the first place and there were some issues or some cracks and now with the pandemic it just really elucidated them and now things are they, they you can really see how bad they are especially spending so much time together so when relationships are falling apart what i want to do with those couples is really figure out is this something that has to do with the pandemic or is this something that doesn't have to do with the pandemic, that are deeper things that we should be working on, but the pandemic kind of just brought them to light. Now, of course, if they are things that don't have to do with the pandemic, then that's kind of a whole different story. That's like, you know, what to do with couples in in the first place. But let's talk about how the pandemic makes things worse and what to do to make it better. So the important thing that I find really helps with couples is setting boundaries. With the pandemic, with the lockdown, Couples are staying together a lot more, spending a lot more time together. And if you're working from home, especially if you're doing real estate investing, you can work from home, then the lines between work and home get really muddy. And that is what creates problems because then you, you're trying to work, but then maybe you're spending time with your partner. Maybe you're, you're trying to do chores. Maybe your partner wants you to talk or do chores and they can just really get all messy and that can get frustrating. And you're never leaving your office because you're constantly at home, which is now your office. So the whole thing can get really stressful and overwhelming. I'm sure you have experienced that. I've experienced that as well. So the key to fixing that is healthy boundaries. It's important to compartmentalize your day at, with at least your time and if possible your space so that you have time just for work and time not working. And if possible, space in your house or home or whatever, just for work and space not where you're working and keep those distinctions sacred. That That's kind of like my, my go-to first advice for couples. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's great advice. Now, what about if two people or a family, they're involved in a business together or real estate together. So they work together to begin with, let's just say aside from, you know, being in social isolation, just in general. And and then they're also home together afterwards with or without (laughs) kids. But you know, that's a lot of seeing one person, right? Like that's, that's a lot of your life. You know, how, how are people, you know, how can people cope with that and just creating some boundaries with with uh, these situations? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually get that a lot from people. They'll they'll come to, sometimes I'll have someone come to me and say, you know, Justin, like I have a hard time looking at my spouse as a romantic or sexual being because it's like the whole day I see them, we're working together, we're like business partners or whatever. And then there's frustrations working with a coworker and then you come home and then it's like, you still see that same person you're, it's not like you can automatically just switch and then see them in a different light. So that's why I think if you're working with your spouse or partner, again, have time and space where our relationship is a working relationship and a different time in a different space where our relationship is not a working relationship. So if it's as simple as we're out in the field or seeing properties or whatever, nine to five, we are talking about business 
And then when we're home and we're having dinner, we're not talking about business. We are engaging in a way that is about our relationship. It's so important to foster both, to foster that business relationship, but also to foster a relationship that doesn't have to do with business. The things that you enjoy about each other, the things that you enjoy in common, that may, may need to grow or may need to be nurtured because that's what maybe brought you together in the first place. But I hear you. It's not like, you know, as soon as you pull in the driveway together and it's time for dinner, automatically you're going to see each other in a romantic way. It doesn't work that way. You can't just switch it like that. So the key to having that transition is to have a buffer period where you are by yourself. It's important to spend some time in between those two different stages where you're by yourself, where you can reset and readjust and then come back to your partner. So if you're spending the whole day seeing properties with your partner, take half an hour or whatever by yourself, by yourselves, go for a walk, sit in different rooms, meditate, whatever works for you, and then come back together. And then I invite you to see each other in a different light and then not talk about business. Don't talk about it over dinner. You can talk about it the next day. It's kind of like creating this artificial dual relationship. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, I just want to take a moment and interrupt the podcast to introduce you to my mortgage broker, Dahlia Barsoom, and her team at Streetwise Mortgages. Because everything around us is changing, the world as we know it is not going to be the same. COVID-19, the economic crisis is a time of uncertainty for many of us. And the lending and real estate landscape, they're changing quite rapidly day by day. Today's financing and investment decisions are gonna be different than the ones that we made yesterday. Dahlia and her team are gonna be able to help us maneuver through all of this. They're property investors themselves, so they've worked with thousands of real estate investors across Ontario, and they have their pulse and their finger on what's happening around us in real time from a real estate financing and investments point of view. Her team of advisors are committed to helping us keep informed and get that up-to-date information. And they're also going to be able to help us navigate through this crisis to also mitigate and minimize any financial distress during this whole transition, and also also help us emerge out of this in a strong financial position so that we can leverage ourselves for some great opportunities that are going to be coming to us. They've been able to help many investors in times like this by really planning out your plan for the good, but also for the bad, because these circumstances that are happening are going to be very individual for all of us. And they're going to help navigate three key parts financial stability, financial agility, and opportunity, and help you manage through those three things. When it comes to stability, how can you enhance your reserves and your liquidity to weather the storm? You're going to have different plans, so it's important to get that individualized plan. How can you utilize mortgage payment deferrals? Should you? Should you not? Why or why not? Any debt restructuring opportunities, those are all things that Dahlia and her team can help you work with. Now, when it comes to financial agility, there's some things that you might want to talk about are how do you make some improvements to your monthly budget so that you can increase your cash flow? Are there any financing tools that you can use to cover some short-term cash flow deficits? When it comes to opportunity, there's going to be some great opportunity that's going to come out of this. How can you set yourself up? for success. So her and her team are going to be able to help you maneuver through these things and create a plan, not only for the good times, but also in times like this, so that you can handle the storm and come out ahead. Feel free to reach out to Dahlia and her team at info at streetwisemortgages.com or go to her website, streetwisemortgages.com. And now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. In times where you're next to your spouse so long, like I find, you know, Matt's great. And luckily where we have space that we can, we can go into our like own sections, et cetera. Um, A lot of people don't, but I can see how you can, you know, you can be more snappy. You could be a little bit more angry with stuff because of all the chaos and uncertainty. Like we're in a position where like, you know, we haven't lost any income, but I, I can think of many people where, their jobs are gone. Now they're on CERB. Their mortgage payments are deferred, but they don't know if they're going to be able to have jobs come 
four months when CERB is done to continue paying their mortgage payments. There's a lot of stress. There's probably a lot more fighting. Any tips on like, I know there's like no good way of fighting, but a better way of fighting and trying to get along through all the chaos? Yeah. So that, that's an excellent question. And it happens a lot. And I see that a lot. And uh, one thing that we say a lot in therapy is that it's not about fighting. It's about how the fights reconcile. That's the more important piece. Of course, there are healthier ways of fighting, like being respectful, talking about your feelings, using I statements, not being accusatory, that kind of thing. But fights are going to happen. That's just the reality. There's no healthy relationship without disagreements and arguments. And especially now with the pandemic and with you know external stressors, there will be extra fights. So the important part is how the couple comes back together. Now, first of all, there is nothing wrong with taking a break in the middle of a fight. If you notice that you're getting overwhelmed and, um, and you're getting really angry and you don't like that, or if you notice that your partner is losing control, you don't have to hash it out in that very moment and fight until you kind of come to resolution. Sometimes it's impossible to come to resolution when the emotions are so high. It's okay to take a break and step aside and cool off and then come back together with cooler heads. And the other thing is called externalization. So externalization is this idea that when there is a problem in the relationship, often we'll attribute it to the other person. We'll say like, you know what, you're the problem, you are saying this, or you are acting this way, or you're bad for this reason, or whatever, vice versa. Externalization is the idea of externalizing the problem and saying, you know what, you're upset, I'm upset, we're both frustrated. It's not because you're the problem or I'm the problem. The problem is the problem. The problem, for example, is the pandemic, is the fact that we lost our jobs or income is really low. The problem is that we're stuck at home and can barely get outside and that's really difficult for us. So instead of looking at each other, butting heads, we shift together and are sitting side by side looking at the problem and saying, you know what? Yeah, let's agree that that problem sucks. How can we tackle this problem as a team? Because we're both facing it together and it's impacting both of us. Let's keep it outside of us. And if it impacts us, that's understandable, but we are a team facing it together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well said. Now there's a lot of people listening that may not have a spouse. It's just them and they potentially have a lot of stress and, and, uh, and uncertainty as well. Mental health concerns and issues I can see going through, you know, the roof, fortunately. What are some things that people can do to maintain some sort of normalcy through, uh, through all the chaotic times that we're going to have, continue having likely every, every few years? Mm -hmm. question. Yeah. So I think that the first thing is to adjust expectations. So I think the key is what you said, some normalcy. But especially now in these days, and it may exist in you know, different times, is that when there's a big external stressor, it's impossible to expect everything to be as normal as it was. So whether it's the pandemic or you just lost your job or you just went through a difficult breakup or you've been you know, abused and traumatized by something, you can't expect yourself to be at the same level mental health-wise as you were when you didn't have that external stress. So we, we can't expect ourselves to be as happy and, and you know, go lucky as we used to be before the pandemic. Um, it's just going to be more difficult. And by adjusting our expectations to be a little bit lower, there's that level of self-acceptance that like, you know what, it's okay that I am not okay. And that in itself prevents it from getting worse. Because often things like depression, we often feel depressed that we're depressed and the depression gets worse. Or we feel anxious that I am, I'm anxious because I'm anxious. Uh-oh, this is not good. And then it leads to snowballing effect and leads to panic. So accepting that I am not okay is, makes a tremendous difference. And of course, there are other things that can be done to actually help with those things. I highly recommend seeing a therapist uh, because it is very specific to what you are going through. It can be really helpful to uh, talk to someone about what you're going through and get specific help with what you're dealing with. But of course, aside from a therapist, especially in these times of social isolation, it's so important to connect with others in general. 
the thing about the mental health issues is that it makes us isolated. It, it separates us from others because we feel different, we feel weak, we feel inferior. And the isolation, the separation makes it much worse. But connecting with others, connecting with friends, family, loved ones, that makes a tremendous difference for our well-being because we are incredibly social beings. So especially now in the pandemic and if you're ever dealing with mental health, I highly recommend connect with others. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the, the therapist, and I think there's still a stigma with uh, with therapy, but <laughs> I, I think it's quite interesting even just to have somebody ask you questions so that you can think and you can you know analyze and rationalize some of the thoughts and the behaviors. I, I think it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit back to real estate investing. Uh, Sarah, you've got a lot of JVs, a lot of JV partners, yeah. a lot of different personalities, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, potentially some people that are concerned even in what's going to happen in the next six months, in the next 12 months in real estate investing, or are they going to lose their investment, et cetera. So Walk us through some of what you're experiencing right now with JVs and how to, and maybe Justin, how to best be able to, to get out of the chaos at some point and come out ahead. No, that's a great question. And I'm getting asked that a lot. You know, it's like, everyone's asking me, what are private lenders doing right now? Are JVs still wanting to invest? Um, and I mean, we've seen a huge shift. Like, when this all happened, like especially the lockdown, and then further on April 4th, when they originally shut down construction, the panic in my partners was palpable. Like they, my phone was ringing off the hook. People are like, what are you doing with these flips? Are you going to be able to get our private loans back? Like all my like eager investors that were ready to invest wanted to sit on the sidelines for a few months. Like it was chaos for a little while. That being said, I mean, I think that because our portfolio is like well diversified, you know, we are cautious with our numbers to begin with. None of our properties experienced like any major downturns, like a hundred percent of our tenants can rent. Most of my refinances have been done or we can wait it out a few more months because we're cash flowing or at least getting some income coming in. So like we were well prepared, I think going into the pandemic so that my partners were like scared and calling me, but they're like, I kind of explained, okay, like, here's the next steps. Here's what we're going to do. If this happens, here's a plan B to kind of get some tenants in like, like our student rentals, right? Some of my partners were like, well, what do we do if university doesn't start up again in September? I'm like, it's fine. In the meantime, we'll start doing month by month rentals. There's some international students even that are like trapped over here right now until the, the fall semester because of their visas. So I'm like, we'll give, you know, we'll, we'll still rent to students over the summer. We'll get good income still coming in. Um, like we, we've managed to kind of like triage the situation and figure it out, but it definitely required a lot of like hand holding. People are scared right now. People are definitely holding back. They want to wait a few months to see, you know, what's happening with the market. Private lenders, I think at the top of the list are the ones that are holding back the most because they're holding so much risk. And for me to say, yeah, I think this ARV is going to be, you know, X in the next two months. I would be lying if I said that. I give them a zone, a buffer that I think. And then I'm like, hey, if you're comfortable with this zone, with this type of, you know, these numbers I'm giving you, cool. If not, you know, I understand because there, there is a lot of uncertainty for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That That's uh, well said. Justin, any anything you'd like to add to that? Hmm. I I don't know what what to add to that. Um, she's definitely. Well, how how about how about this? Like, if you know, like Sarah, I mean, you've been doing this for for a while. But if somebody has JV partners and they're freaking out on the phone, like, what are some things in, that you could do to calm them? Because one of the things I'm I'm hearing a lot from you know listeners or uh, you know people just reaching out to me on Instagram and whatnot is they're freaking out. They're like, Oh my God, I should sell now. Should I sell now? Should I do there? Yeah. There's a lot of panic. And again, nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, but like you said, Sarah, if you, if you diversify, but you also buy on the fundamentals and you, your properties make sense and you can hold for the long term. I don't think it's worth panicking, but sometimes people get freaked out. Right. So I don't know, Justin, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two things that come to mind. Um, the first is just my knowledge of 
I guess, real estate, which is limited. So take it with a grain of salt. But the way I understand it is that people need to live somewhere and there are so many people. And so that's not going to change, even with the pandemic. Even, even though there are, you know, people are dying, it's not like half the population is being wiped out. Now demand for living has is, is gone down tremendously. People will always need a place to live. So even if people aren't able to afford rent, there's been lots of assistance by the government. Um, so it looks like things are going to be okay. And already things are starting to improve. But in general, talking to someone who is panicking, in particular a business partner, uh, I think the important thing is to convey with to them through your tone of voice that you you are calm and, and you are you have it together kind of thing. Because when someone is in a panic and they hear a voice of someone who is not in a panic and someone who's relaxed but understanding, it calms their own nervous system down. But if you're panicking because they're panicking and you don't want to lose their you know business or whatever, then that will just amplify everything in a snowball and be really bad. So remain calm yourself. Validate that you know what makes sense that you're 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 worried and whatever. And then gently offer to them why you find calm. What makes you calm in this situation? Why are you okay in this situation? I'm okay because you know what? I know that the facts are this, or I know that it's going to be okay, et cetera. And I think that that will make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, that's pretty much what I did with my JVs, right? Is when they were freaking out, I said, okay, you know what? I get it. I know there's a lot of uncertainty. I know plans may have changed for us. This refinance we plan for next month might be pushed back four months. I can't promise anything right now, but here's what we're going to do in the meantime. Here's what we're doing to work on this. Here's how we can, um, you know, help reduce some of your expenses. For some of my JVs, we even ended up doing partial refinances on properties like duplexes where we'd only finished one half and we're still waiting to get permits for the second half. I said, okay, well, let's just do a refinance now, quote, some of your capital allow them to have a little bit of liquidity and then we'll work on getting the second done when we're allowed to do construction again. So just kind of helping them walk through the process. I think like you just have to, like you said, just be calm and, and try mm -hmm. to show them that you have it under control. Yeah, you have a plan and strategies, kind of plan A, plan B, plan C. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm calm just hearing you know. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, obviously like financial stress is, is a big, Thing for couples, for families, just people in, in general, like what are some of the top stressors that, uh, that are out there other than financial? For couples? They're just in general. I'm guessing, I'm guessing like health is one of them, like, fi like finances is another one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find that a lot of people, when they're not stressed about money uh, or health, they're, a lot of people are very lonely. And that's a very stressful thing, whether they are young adults who haven't found someone that they feel is a life partner or a teen who's just looking for friends or uh, a divorcee that's feeling lonely and doesn't know how to find another partner kind of thing. Loneliness is a big problem that uh, I hear a lot about. And that's something I can't really do much about because it's not like you can say, oh, well, you know what? My next client is also lonely. You two should be friends. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So, so speaking of that though, like, and I'm going to switch it back to real estate. There's a lot of networking events, real estate networking events where you can connect. I mean, it, it's kind of ironic, but you know, my top five now are real estate investors, right? The five people that I hang out with the most uh, on a month to month basis, as an example. So one of the things is going out to network, but a lot of people are very scared. Yeah. Guy, not mm -hmm. comfortable networking. Are there any tips that either one of you can share about how somebody can get more comfortable with networking and potentially create some great lasting connections? Yeah, I have some tips. You know, if you want to say anything. Well, first, I think I want to share like my personal experience with networking because I think this like might help people. So most people know because they probably watched me on a bunch of podcasts and like my YouTube channel. I'm very outgoing, and I think most people would think that that's me but actually when i'm on stage or i'm in front of the camera i think i'm a lot more outgoing than when i'm at networking events and sometimes i actually get 
nervous in big groups of people. And when I first started going to networking, like real estate events, I was so scared. Like I used to hide in the back corner and I was so like afraid to talk to anyone, <laughs> especially because I was new and I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't think people like wanted to hear from me. And then it took a little bit of time. I just kept forcing myself to go. And then I would try to sit at like a different table every time I let people talk to me and then slowly but surely I kind of like worked my way out of my shell but I think my tip at least anyway is just keep making yourself go it's like exposure you know like the more you face your fears the better it gets um, and if you can go with a friend or a family member someone maybe even that you know kind of in like a mutual circle that can kind of be your shield or your buffer a bit I know that can help a little bit too yeah, that makes so much sense. And that, that fits with like psychology because like you're saying exposure and whenever there's something that makes you anxious, the more you expose yourself to it and then notice that it's not actually dangerous, the less anxious you will feel. So the more you put yourself in that environment, even if it's uncomfortable and then realize you're not, you know, being bullied, then the better it's going to be. Because I find that a lot of people adopted this level of shyness because in childhood a lot of us have been bullied and made fun of for saying the wrong thing not looking a certain way etc and then so we carry those insecurities and anxieties into adulthood and going into a new social space it's like we're, we're subconsciously reminded of like you know first day of school or, or walking into a new class and then all these people who like may laugh at us or tease us or whatever and we don't want that so one thing that I find that's helpful to uh, remind people and myself is that, you know what, this isn't elementary school. People are not going to make fun of me and people are not going to, to bully me if I say something stupid or I look a certain way or whatever. And then the more I expose myself, like Sarah's saying, the more it makes a difference. So just like kind of jumping into that cold pool. But yeah. All right. Last, last question. They're great points. Definitely. Last question before we go into our lightning round. I want to, mention how important it is to screen the right tenants a because you want to make sure that they don't trash the place and keep the place clean and tidy and pay on time etc but b i mean these could be your tenants for two years five years potentially longer and it's it's important to establish you know clear ways to communicate and i think maybe you guys can both answer some tips on how to best communicate with your tenants in good times in bad times who wants to go first I know you're the expert on that. Yeah. Well, I'll give a couple of tips and then let him take over from like a psychology standpoint. I mean, I've been a landlord for a long time and a property manager before that. So like I've seen it all. I've dealt with a lot of different stuff going into the pandemic, even like, you know, we were kind of nervous about how things would pan out. And what I realized is that how I dealt with my tenants before and after didn't really change that much. And that actually kind of gave me confidence knowing that, wow, like, you know what, all of my tenants paid rent. Everybody was in communication with me. Everyone was behaving really, really good during the pandemic. So that means that what I was doing before was definitely working. And I think like the principles should apply, like whether you're in a pandemic or not, like sure, during the pandemic, you need to be a little more like understanding, establish more communication because you're probably not going to be able to see them face to face. But it really comes down to good communication. Like first and foremost, if you are not communicating well with your tenants on a regular basis, if you're not setting good boundaries and guidelines from the get go, when you're screening them, you're always going to have a problem. Like I've never had tenants not pay rent. Like I've been to the landlord tenant boards three times and they were all for assumed tenants, never a tenant I put in myself. Why? Because when I screen them, I made it clear, like, this is the type of landlord I am. This is what I expect from you. This is what I'm going to do for you. But like, this is going to be the relationship, take it or leave it. And so whether we were are like in good times or pandemic times, they still get what is expected from them. And so they didn't change their behavior. So I found that reassuring. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I don't have that much to add to that except for this one little point. Um, which is that I know that sometimes tenants get a bad rap because um, maybe they're, you know, we're worried about them not paying or trashing the place or whatever it might be. And also among tenants, landlords get bad raps because uh, they're seen in, you know, negative ways or whatever. 
but the reality is that tenants need landlords and landlords need tenants. So from a relationship standpoint, I see it as this is a, a, a relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship. It can be mutually beneficial. So if I were to mediate, I would ask both parties, like, how can this be mutually beneficial? What do each need in this scenario? So it could be that, you know, the landlord just needs the place to be taken care of, needs rent paid on time. And the tenant needs like, you know what, I need this to be fixed. This is really uncomfortable. Or I'm going through a really rough time. I'm looking for maybe some compassion. And that level of compassion or understanding from a landlord can, I think, psychologically make a difference for the tenant. And the tenant might be like, you know what, I like my landlord. I don't want to upset them. They seem to really be compassionate towards me or whatever it might be. So again, mutually beneficial relationships, seeing it that way as a, as a team kind of thing can make a difference. Well said. Awesome. All right, cool. So we're going to do a quick lightning round. You guys are going to answer these questions, just the top of your head, first thing that comes to mind. Ready? Do it. <laughs> Question number one, what is your favorite real estate or Justin business book? I always have to say like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because it made like such a difference for me. Mm-hmm. Mine is uh, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. I'm actually reading that right now. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's such great. a good book. It's, yeah. It's, I read it cover to cover. It was great. <laughs> nice. All right. Question two. What is your favorite podcast if you listen to podcasts? Yours. Always. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, I also like Everyday Millionaire by like okay. the Rain Network. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mine is um, uh, Conan's podcast, just because after <laughs> hearing about trauma and abuse, I just want to laugh. <laughs> Sounds good. Three, what do you guys do for fun aside from real estate or therapy? It's not fun enough to do therapy and real estate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess like as a couple, like we definitely like being outdoorsy, going on lots of like hikes and little weekend adventures and getaways and stuff. We also bond a lot over playing video games together, which yeah. is a great form of lots of different art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very cool. Next question, question four. If you lost all of your money, your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Oh, wow. That's a good one. I would probably start again in like a similar way to what I'm doing. Like, I feel like I've had a lot of life experience. I'd probably go back into some sort of like coaching, consulting, like helping other people, like starting maybe like a little academy or foundation, educating like female entrepreneurs, something like that. But I still have my license. Or I lost you'd that too. Your, you'd still have your education and your license, but your material things would be gone. Material things would be gone. Okay. So first of all, that'd be really tough <laughs> and really struggling. I'd probably lean on my um, social resources. So family members that could be able to support me and use my strengths and skills to rebuild. Awesome. All right. Final question. If somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started and you can put a therapist spin on it too. How would you recommend that they spend their 50000 I mean, obviously, I have to say, like, investing in real estate. I think if they're smart, for a strategy, you know, put it into, like, a small, even, like, a single family, borrow, like, even get, like, an RSP mortgage for renovations if you don't have more than that 50 flip it, refinance it, pull up the capital, and do it again. Mm. Good. My therapist spit on that <laughs> would be to, first of all, resist the urge to splurge on yourself to make yourself feel good because that I'm sure will be really tempting but at the same time reward yourself so maybe you want to invest it in real estate but you also want to feel like I got something fun so maybe set a small percentage of it like a one percent two percent of that to just like do something fun to celebrate this money that just came in and then the rest of it you know go to one of the wonderful Sarah's and invest in real estate I like to spend with something fun. You know, I I think, well, especially in times like this, I don't think many of us are having a whole lot of fun, but it is important. And even just to find ways to have fun indoors. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it's important to have fun. You're allowed to have fun. Absolutely. So you guys have, you know, separate businesses at this point. How can the listeners reach out to each of you? Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So I kept my handle pretty simple. So if you guys want to find me on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram, um, you can find me at Sarah Etter Invest. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I've branded myself as Justin the Therapist. Quite easy to remember, so you can check out my website, justinthetherapist.com or at justinthetherapist on Instagram, etc. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you can find me easily. Amazing. Any final last words of advice? If you have to give one piece of advice before we, uh, we end the podcast, what would that be? I would say for the real estate investors out there, don't give up hope, even though things do feel like super uncertain right now. I know a lot of people are afraid of like what's coming and what's going to happen in the real estate market. Don't give up. Don't sit and feel paralyzed, you know, that there's nothing to be done. Keep educating yourself, keep getting advice from, you know, podcasts like this that, you know, or give you good, honest information um, and just make smart steps to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that there is good in every single situation. So even if you lost everything, even if you're stuck at home, even if you just got a you know terminal, terminal illness, whatever it might be, there is something positive in every situation. And orienting ourselves to that positive, mixing it with self-compassion, I think can make a big difference for how you feel and how you are with others. Amazing. Thank you so much, Justin, Sarah, for being on Where Should I Invest. It was a pleasure having you on. And Justin, you know, you've got, uh, you've got some great insights for real estate investors, business owners, or, you know, people in general. I think it's all very applicable stuff. And, uh, and Sarah, congrats on all your success in a short time, Thank getting you. to, you know, some, I think almost 80 units at this point in time. So great job, you guys. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the Burr strategy. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larvey. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.